This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania, the podcast that tells the story of civil liberties. I'm Andy Hoover. Greetings from Harrisburg. For this episode, I sat down with Elizabeth Randall, the legislative director for the ACLU PA. Liz is responsible for leading our efforts at the state capitol, and in this conversation, we zeroed in on two prominent civil liberties issues, reproductive rights and smart justice. People who are passionate about civil liberties and social justice and social change have a tendency to prioritize federal action. That was true even before the election of Donald Trump, and it seems to have become an even greater tendency in the last year and a half. But we cannot forget that state and local elected office holders and public officials have as much or even more impact on our daily lives than those in Washington, D.C. That's why Liz and I decided to focus on reproductive rights and smart justice for this episode. With changes at the Supreme Court and the future of Roe v. Wade in doubt, state legislators and governors could become central players in determining how accessible abortion will be for women in the years ahead. Meanwhile, 90% of incarcerated people in the United States are in state prisons or local jails. The Pennsylvania General Assembly is currently in its summer recess, so this was a great opportunity to sit down with Liz and assess the state of these issues at the state capitol. This conversation was recorded on July 11th. Liz, this seems like the right time to talk with you because the legislature is on summer break. Uh, they're out till sometime after Labor Day, uh, which means you don't really have much to do, right? Is oh, that <laughs> definitely not nothing whatsoever? Um, <laughs> yeah, and the legislature is heading into the final stretch of its current session. Um, for folks who aren't familiar with Pennsylvania's government, um, it's a two-year session. Uh, it ends the year of a state election, which is this year. So. They have a few weeks of session left in the fall, and then everything reboots. Yeah. Uh, when people ask you, how's it going? What do you say? <laughs> well, you know, I usually will tell people it's either the job is either hair on fire or you're sitting around waiting for something to happen. So, um, and that could change within the same day. It could uh, change week to week. And certainly just even though they're not in session over the summer, it doesn't mean that some of the legislators are not busy or starting to... Uh, respond to news events or issues that are happening within their district. So um, it, never, never a dull moment for sure in the legislature. So um, yeah. So in our pre-meeting, uh, we were discussing <laughs> um, zeroing in on reproductive rights and criminal justice in particular. And the rationale being that um, these issues are impacted by what happens at the state and local level, which is especially true with criminal justice policy. Um, I wonder if you can expand on that a bit. Why do you think it's so important for people to understand the role of their state lawmakers, especially at a time when there's so much attention on what's happening at the federal level? Sure. So I usually use these moments in the news. I mean, we have just been uh, watching the uh, Justice Kennedy, his retirement and the subsequent appointment of Brett Kavanaugh. Um, or at least the nomination, sorry, of, uh, of Brett Kavanaugh, and using the attention on some of the high-profile conversations that are happening specifically in this instance around a couple of different issues, but namely Roe v. Wade 
and access to abortion rights. Um, and using that as an opportunity to remind people that, you know, we, you, Andy, you had this job before I did, and I think we both have experienced our fair share of beating our heads against a brick wall, trying to tell people that it's really important to pay attention to what your state legislators are doing, uh, namely because a lot of the law that affects people and that would directly affect them um, is legislated at the state level. It's not federal level um, for the most part. It is not on federal level legislation. So for example, if Roe versus Wade gets overturned, um, it doesn't make abortion illegal. It just means that all of the power to determine what kinds of services, what kind of access uh, we would have here, for example, in Pennsylvania, would get kicked back to the states. And so if we don't pay attention to and keep a good eye on what is happening in our state legislatures, sometimes I might argue, and maybe perhaps I'm biased, but uh, that I I focus, I mean, it, it is my job, but I have tried very hard to, um, to focus on what's happening at the state level. You have a much greater ability to affect how your legislator thinks about things. They're closer to their constituents. Um, some of the decisions that are made at the state level are much more... Um, affect people much more directly and I think we have been the past year and a half or so two years been really focused at federal level issues uh, but these are things that as we're focused on that if we take our eyes off of what's happening at the state level we're going to be in some in some real trouble and have been as a result of not really perhaps paying as much attention as we should. So you mentioned uh, reproductive rights and the fact that Justice Kennedy's retirement really makes leaves Roe in flux um, our, the current makeup of our legislature is one that, let's face it, is hostile to reproductive rights, and that's that's bipartisan hostility. That's right. Um, we have a governor who is supportive, and he's made that quite clear. Uh, what What's going on? Our present may inform our future. Um, yeah. What is happening specifically on reproductive rights at the General Assembly that you want folks to know about? So many of our listeners may remember the uh, attention that we uh, were pulling to the, uh, it was a double abortion ban bill, it was Senate Bill 3, that ended up being passed both in the House and the Senate and was subsequently vetoed by the governor. And that if it were, you know, sometimes we say if it had passed, but it did pass, it just happened to be vetoed. So if this bill had been enacted, it would have been the most extreme abortion ban in the country. Um, lest anyone think that because we are Pennsylvania and we might be in the Northeast that we are somehow um, less severe in terms of how we think about these things. Um, let people stand corrected. Um, but so, uh, but that, that bill in particular would have criminalized. I think it's important also to remind people that when we talk about abortion bans, these are, these are measures that would criminalize the performing of an abortion so that when we talk about, oh, overturning Roe or we are going back to the days, you know, pre-Roe uh, or looking at bans that are being passed all throughout state legislatures across the country. These are criminal, these are bills that criminalize the performing of abortion. So um, the SB3 would have um, not only criminalized um, uh, termination of uh, performing an abortion after 19 weeks, but it also would have um, criminalized the performing of 
um, a safe method of uh, termination in the second month of pregnancy. And so it was both a method ban and like a, um, a ban on the, the number of um, weeks. So we currently, and so back to what you asked me in the beginning in terms of how's it going, which is hair on fire, something might be happening, and then all of a sudden, maybe it doesn't. Okay. So, um, so we had a, a bit of a scare. So the um, Representative Terzai, who's the majority, or I'm sorry, it's the Speaker of the House, he introduced a, um, an abortion ban bill that would criminalize the performing of an abortion based solely on a fetal diagnosis of Down syndrome. That bill passed the House um, and also passed um, out of the Senate committee and was teetering on perhaps being considered to be uh, run on the floor of the, of the Senate uh, for a vote. And so it did not. We thought that it we were hearing rumblings that it was going to. Uh, it ended up not, but it doesn't mean that that bill, until we get to the end of the session, all of the bills that we are discussing, if they haven't either been vetoed um, you know, or passed or enacted, are live issues. So we have a couple of those. And we also have, there's a, another bill. Um, so the Down syndrome bill is House Bill 2050. Um, there is a heartbeat bill, um, and that is House Bill 23... 2315, I believe. And that one would, if as soon as a fetal heartbeat is detected, perhaps around six weeks um, of gestation, uh, would criminalize termination of that. Um, it is flatly, it is unbelievably flatly unconstitutional as it stands. But I think what people need to realize is that we may be, we may, I might snark sometimes at the fact that the legislature introduces unconstitutional legislation, but often, but in many cases, or in some cases, I should say, they do it because they're intentionally trying to, um, to provoke a particular case. So this heartbeat bill is something that I would suspect would be something that could be, could trigger um, overturning Roe if, if it were to A, pass, which it, I don't think that it would. I mean, it wouldn't pass the governor. Uh, it would pass the legislature, perhaps. Um, and as a result, um, if it made its way up to the court, it could be, you know, the kind of kind of legislation that could challenge the underlying like rationale of the of Roe. Yeah, and that's important for folks to understand is that um, if Judge Kavanaugh ends up on the Supreme Court, uh, there has to be a case that comes before the court that challenges Roe. And so, what that you're exactly right. This is what these, these legislatures are doing um, is trying to put things in the pipeline, put put cases in the pipeline. Um, to make that happen. Um, I also wanted to come back to the Down Syndrome Bill, House Bill 2050. You know, let's face it, we are a nonpartisan organization. We don't endorse candidates in campaigns. Um, we want people to use their power as constituents and as voters um, to put pressure on their legislators. And my understanding from being a little bit on the sideline, but hearing what I've heard, um, including from you, is that one of the reasons maybe this didn't come up in the Senate is because, frankly, there are some state senators that Republicans who are in competitive races. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if you can speak to that and just tell folks who are listening to this why it's so important that they understand that and make sure that their legislators, particularly in this instance, their state senators are hearing from them. No, that's a really good point, Andy. I mean, I think I'll just back up just quickly to, to point out the fact that we lost uh, – when we try to look at where the how the we suspect the legislature may vote on some of these issues, when we were looking at this bill in the House, 
we used as a comparison the vote that was taken on the on SB3, the double abortion ban that I referenced earlier. And there were a significant number of additional Democrats who um, voted in favor of the Down syndrome ban by like an order of magnitude that was worrisome. And so um, in the House, we um, we lost a lot of Democratic support or at least the Democratic buffer. Um, and but in now in the Senate, um, it is important. I'm glad that you mentioned that, that, um, you know, they we ha- in the southeast in particular, there are Republicans that are in competitive races and many of the southeast Republicans are also often vote pro-choice. And so it becomes um, a, a much more volatile issue for them in an electoral capacity if those types of bills run on the floor and they're forced to take a vote as we get closer to the election. So, uh, but again, I mean, we talk about this all the time that I very rarely, whether it's, you know, reproductive rights or criminal justice reform, it's there, these votes on those issues do not cleave cleanly on partisan lines. We have people on both sides. We have Republicans who are supporters and allies of ours on, on these issues. And we have Democrats that are, you know, hardcore, regular um, and reliable opponents on them. So let's pivot over to criminal justice reform. Um, there are some specific bills I want to ask you about, but first I want to give you a chance just to talk broadly about our approach. Uh, as some folks may know, but others may not, you know, we have a campaign for smart justice. Um, that campaign is specifically, at, um, the goals are to cut the prison population in half. Um, and to combat racial disparities in the criminal justice system. Of course, there are criminal justice issues even beyond that around policing. Um, but my question for you is when you are looking at legislation related to criminal justice, um, what specifically are you looking at? Are there particular areas of the criminal justice system that um, you're flagging when they come up at the legislature? Ah, good question, Andy. Uh, so. There are a few things that we, I think, are highly, that we are usually on the lookout for when we review a piece of legislation. Let's let's start with the most basic, and this pretty much goes for everything, which is, is it constitutional? <laughs> because uh, it's amazing how many things get introduced and there has been no review, no vetting. And again, like I said, I think there are certainly some bills that are intended to be unconstitutional in order to push the envelope in some ways. but. I also suspect that many of them are accidental or nobody's bothered to ask that question. So A, is it constitutional? B, um, we look at whether or not the, that, uh, the provision that is being proposed in the legislation already exists in the criminal code, which does happen. Uh, so it's already been attended to. It doesn't do anything new. They're introducing a piece of legislation that literally will have absolutely no change or effect because it's already been, it's already covered in the statute. Um, but following from that, back to our original conversation around the power that the state has to legislate um, important around important issues that we are focused on. Um, we look at, does the bill create a new crime? We look for um, whether it establishes um, an enhancement, a sentencing enhancement that would increase the, um, the number of years um, and or the, you know, the, the fines that would be affiliated or connected to a um, uh, to a particular offense, um, we look at ways in terms of how the some of the policies or ways that, say, um, you know, bail might be uh, disproportionately affect 
people of color and certainly uh, poor people, people who cannot afford um, to pay those fines. We look for you know equity issues and disparities where those could sort of crop up. Uh, we look at and we always pay attention to issues around parole, probation and parole in terms of um, lengthening any of the time that um, is attached to those. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, so I'll give you a quick example that I got from Nisa Taylor, our Criminal Justice Policy Council, but I think it's a really, um, it's a good example because uh, it seems really simple, but the effect of it is pretty um, dire. So um, apparently in the code, there uh, someone can get convicted of an aggravated assault, but you can also be convicted or charged with and convicted of strangulation. Technically, strangulation is an aggravated assault, but because it's created a, a new crime um, as strangulation and not just being considered an aggravated assault, it means that if someone, if you strangle someone, you can get charged with and convicted of two separate crimes that both carry uh, an aggravated assault is a first degree felony. Strangulation is, is graded as a second degree felony and combined um, the maximum sentence for a first degree is 20 years and the maximum sentence for um, a, a second degree felony is 10 years. So in Pennsylvania, not only could you then serve, you can serve a consecutive sentence with both of those, so say 30 years. But in Pennsylvania, unlike almost any other state, we allow people, we don't have any cap on how long someone can spend on probation. And so in Pennsylvania, the only criteria is that you can be on probation as long as what the maximum amount number of years are for the crime that you committed. So it is conceivable that someone who strangled someone could get 30 years I mean, this is assuming the maximums. This may be a bit um, hypothetical, but um, I think it stands, it, it's a good example. Not only imprisonment, but they could be conceivably on probation for 30 years. And so most states cap the total amount of probation at five years. Because after every data point study has shown, after if people do not reoffend after three years, usually really within the first year. Um, anything after three years, we're wasting our money supervising people and keeping them on probation. And so, you know, I know that's a lot, and I might have gotten a little in the weeds on that, but I do think it's an important point. So, like, back to your question in terms of what we are looking at with the bill, when we look at does it create a new crime? So the strangulation would be it creates a new crime. Um, and because it creates a new crime, it creates a sentence that goes along with it, but then it has the tail effect of that is what kind of effect would it have on someone who you just do the one, I mean, I'm not trying to uh, make anyone cry a river for someone who strangled somebody, right? So, but at the same time, you, it's, it's one crime. You haven't committed two separate crimes, but you are effectively, you could be charged with and convicted of two separate crimes that carry with it entirely different, you know, a, a first degree and a second degree felony for the same action that also then will have a lingering effect on how long you are under supervision on probation. I remember when I was lobbying the legislature, uh, members or staff would approach me about those kinds of bills. I remember when that bill passed, it was a, it was a priority of the domestic violence awareness um, folks. And when I would be approached by members or by staff about criminal justice bills, I would just be like, look, we could hire, I could hire a couple more lobbyists just to do criminal justice. Absolutely. Um, because yes. this kind of stuff is always coming through. Um, I do think it's interesting that you, when I asked you what you were watching for, uh, the approach, your approach that you've talked about was all about bills we would oppose. 
uh, oh, new right. crime, <laughs> new crimes, right. lengthening sentences, Fair. sentencing enhancements. Right, right, right. Yes, <laughs> but it's not all negative. There That's have actually true. been some positive things, and I want to talk. I want to ask you about a couple of them specifically. Um, one is uh, this idea of clean slate, which has become shorthand for a particular initiative that's now law. Explain what clean slate is. Can I back up for one second? Sure, okay, yes, all right. So, um, but I do. I will. I promise. I won't be as long winded. But I think that the the if you flip the conversation that we had or the point that we were discussing about the fact that positions or uh, that the legislature does not cleave cleanly on partisan lines on criminal justice stuff um, or on those particular issues, it is pretty remarkable that in this current environment of just absolute heightened partisanship um, that there is a lot of, at the national level and even at the state level, it's a bit more fledgling, say, in the state legislature, but um, there are an increasing number, I think, of Republicans uh, who are taking up the mantle of criminal justice reform. So just as we have both Democrats and Republicans who oppose us on some of these issues, this is also, I think, a way I think criminal justice reform has the ability to build into something where there's genuine bipartisan support. Uh, so. Uh, Clean Slate is a great example of that. There were two two bills that were introduced, one in the House and one in the Senate, uh, both sponsored by Republicans. Uh, It was Senator Wagner in the the Senate and um, Representative Delosier in the House, who were the primary sponsors of those bills. And the the benefit of what Clean Slate does is that it not only, well, it automatically, and I'll get back to the automatic, but it automatically seals from public view um, a, your criminal record for certain um, uh, nonviolent misdemeanors and uh, summary offenses uh, after a certain amount of time if you have not reoffended. What's unique about Pennsylvania's, there are several states that do something similar to this. They have sort of similar, similarly structured clean slate bills. What's unique about Pennsylvania's is that it, it happens automatically. And the benefit of that is that the person with the record does not have to go into the courthouse, does not have to go through the the process of filing the paperwork um, to request that their record, one can still file and request that you have your record expunged. Um, This clean slate, however, will, it still will be viewable to law enforcement, but it does seal it from public view. And the benefit again of that is that it would, um, a lot of people who carry some of this, uh, you know, who have a record, it affects their ability sometimes to access housing, um, whether it's landlords or even some public housing, education, um, and definitely employment. Because a lot of these things, I mean, in Pennsylvania, which I didn't realize until we started working on this bill, uh, is that if you have an arrest on your record, not a conviction, if you've been arrested for something, that shows up in Pennsylvania's background checks. If you don't file to get it expunged, it's just on your record. So Clean Slate deals with convictions for uh, low-level offenses and also for summary offenses, and it will affect anyone who just has um, and would automatically seal from public view um, those arrests as well. So it covers a range of things, um, and it's a great start. I mean, it's a nice nice place for um, Pennsylvania to have at least, you know, a good, we have a, a unique thing of that we can offer that is a good model for other states to follow, which is 
usually never the case with yeah. Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. Pennsylvania being the first to do something is rather astounding. The yeah. joke the joke of the legislature is there are 49 states that do this. Guess which one yeah, uh, exactly. is not the <laughs> Pennsylvania is <laughs> usually is that not like right, the other. Right, right, right exactly. When yeah. there's a handful of states that aren't doing something, we're usually in that handful. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. So, and I also think it's worth mentioning you know, the fact that there were so many people involved in Clean Slate. You mentioned Senator Wagner, Representative Delosier, um, Senator mm-hmm. Williams yeah. from Anthony Williams from West Philly, um, Representative Harris. Jordan Harris from South Philly, really active uh, on that issue, plus a lot of advocacy groups. Um, community you know, Legal Services. Community Legal Services yes. of Philadelphia, they were really the driver. Um, Center for American Progress, U.S. Justice Action Network, a lot of folks really pitched in. And then our Eagles players. Oh, right, right, of yeah. course. I mean, course. come on. Yeah. Malcolm Jenkins, uh, Tori, Tori Smith, Smith, Chris, Chris Long, Long, they did a lot to push yeah. push for that as and well. And even while, when they went back after the Super Bowl, they were still fired up, like tweeting stuff out as, it moved, as the bill moved through the legislature. So they didn't take their eyes off of it. So right. um, it was nice. Yeah. Um, the other criminal justice bill I wanted to ask you about, which is a positive mm-hmm. um, and also has a Republican sponsor, is... This bill to end the suspension of a person's driver's license for um, certain offenses, it's incredible, but a person can be convicted of offenses that have nothing to do with the operation of a vehicle, and yet they still get their driver's license suspended. Um, Can you talk a little more about that? Sure. So these bills or this legislation was something that most states had because back in the late 80s when we were kind of at the peak of the um, of our tough on crime um, and our war on drugs uh, moment uh, is that the federal government what they did was they said that um, any state all states um, had to pass legislation like this that would um, automatically suspend people's driver's licenses and it began originally just with drug related offenses um, and if they did not pass legislation that met those standards, they would revoke their federal highway funding. And so it was under threat of penalty that states passed this legislation. I'm sure we were giddy to do it at the time, probably. So it's not like we needed the arm twisting. That being said, um, so a lot of states, um, almost every state that didn't want to lose their federal highway funding, passed legislation that addressed or that would automatically suspend a driver's license for drug-related offenses that had, like, we're not talking about someone who is driving under the influence of alcohol or drugs or somebody who is, like you said, non-moving violations. Um, so it could be that they were stopped on the street and they you know, were charged with possession they, and convicted, they would lose their license. What Pennsylvania then did was then use that as leverage to include a whole other universe of offenses that they thought maybe what we can do is threaten people or try to get people to pay up on things um, if we suspend their license. So for example, currently, if you fail to pay child support, you can lose your license, which seems a bit counterintuitive if there's problems with you, if you are struggling to pay uh, child support, then it's probably not a great idea to suspend your license and make it more difficult to, I don't know, get to work. Right. Um, but you know, some judges have said, look, this is how we you know, get somebody, haul them in because they are worried that they're going to lose their license. However, so this applied to a whole host of of non-drug offenses in addition to drug offenses. So what this bill did, and this was one of those amazing moments where you had a good bill at the beginning, 
Uh, there were actually two separate bills, and so this was um, Representative Rick Saccone um, in collaboration with Representative Dan Miller, who worked together. Dan Miller um, uh, was the primary sponsor of the, uh, the resolution that would address the federal highway funding um, and the notification of the feds so we didn't lose our funding. There were two separate bills that one addressed just the drug charges um, and the suspensions for the suspensions for drug-related offenses, and the other was all of the other issues. The bill gets amended, which usually strikes fear in our hearts when we see that happen. Usually amending stuff makes something worse or weakens it or it does something terrible. In this case, it made it better. So they combined both of those bills so that in one bill you have um, uh, you remove the automatic suspension for all almost all of the uh, the drug offenses and for almost all of there are a few offenses that remain there's some um if there is some like a, a car involved if somebody's drive you know getaway car and for terroristic threats at a school this was um the bill was moving right after the parkland incident and so they retained a couple of offenses for which you can still have an automatic suspension that are not directly related to um driving like motor violations but for the most part, this would be an incredible, this would have a huge effect on thousands of people every year in Pennsylvania who have lost their licenses for nothing to do with their ability or like any reckless driving, had no, nothing to do with their driving ability um, or recklessness, et cetera. So um, it has caused, um, laws like this have caused people to spiral into pits that they find very difficult to get out of. They lose their license, which means they can't get to work. They have difficulty getting their kids to pick you know, childcare. I mean, there's a whole host of things. You lose your license and it's pretty devastating. And it just means that if you're already on the edge, and even if you're not, it is, it's a hell of a thing to have to try to live without a driver's license. And so um, it means that, and often then people will drive with a suspended license and then they get picked up and then get charged. So it, it creates this whole cycle of um, not just problems in people's lived lives with how they, you know, get to work and, you know, deal with family issues, et cetera, but also um, racking up additional um, charges if they are driving, if they're caught driving without a license. And what's the bill number and where is the bill right now? So uh, this bill, it's uh, House Bill 163. Uh, it has passed out of the House with, like, by a huge, I would say, nearly unanimous margin. Um, and it is currently in the Senate Transportation Committee. Um, we are definitely hopeful that, that we can get this bill out um, and enacted by the end of the session. There's only a few session days left, so. All right, Liz, so as I mentioned at the beginning, the legislature is coming down the home stretch of the session. Um, based on these issues we've discussed, uh, if folks are interested, what action can they take? How can they be supportive on these issues? So the legislature, they don't come back until mid-September, so you probably won't be hearing from us uh, in terms of what might, what actions they need, may need to be taking uh, until the fall. But um, there's a couple of things we have. I'm going to focus on our good bills, on the bills that we want to move, because there's plenty that we can challenge um, and keep an eye out for. I will say keep an eye out for the, um, the Down syndrome abortion ban, which is House Bill 2050. Um, because that could pop up before the end of the session and run in the Senate. Um, and there's also a police accountability bill um, that um, is House Bill 27 that we're also worried. That's also pending before the Senate for a floor vote. So both those two bills, the, abort the Down syndrome abortion ban and um, House Bill 27, that would um, 
withhold the identity of a police officer who's being in, under investigation for use of force. Um, it would withhold that information for 30 days from the public. Um, so both of those are teetering on a potential vote in the, in the Senate. Um, following that, though, we are the driver's license bill, um, House Bill 163, um, would encourage you to contact your state senators um, to support that. Um, we also have a really great um, reform bill that is was sponsored by Senator Williams. Um, it is Senate Bill uh, 1067 uh, that does, that will reform pro our probation um, and how we uh, manage technical violations for probation. Um, that is still in the um, in Senate Judiciary. Um, and we also have an incredibly good uh, fines and fees bill that really deals with debtors prison related um, issues. Um, that is Senate Bill 1036. Uh, that is, um, has been, is also before the Senate. So it's made it out of committee, it's before the Senate. So we have a couple of bills that we're gonna be um, hoping to get uh, over the finish line before um, they leave and we start a brand new session in January. All right, Liz, thanks for taking the time. And at the, maybe later in the year, you'll be back and you'll tell us about all the successes we had at the Absolutely. legislature. Looking forward to it. Great. Thanks, Andy. Thank you to Legislative Director Elizabeth Randall for taking the time to sit down to offer her insights. You can find all of the state legislation that the ACLUPA is working on at aclupa.org bills. If you're enjoying Speaking Freely, I hope you'll take the time to rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. Ratings help us reach more people, which help us spread the word about civil liberties and the work of the ACLU of Pennsylvania. That's a wrap on Episode 8. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. And the executive director of the ACLUPA is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free.